never be the same without you. Wow, thank you, Joe. So many people to thank. I'd like to thank Glenda in the front office, our head pastor, Eric Hansen, for his fearless leadership, my parents for always believing in me, the Academy for giving me this opportunity, and trusting that I had a plan and a vision, and of course, my fellow interns for always making me look better than I actually do. Never mind, I'll find someone like you. I wish nothing but... We never thought it possible that we would clap for announcements, right? <laughs> that is awesome. Thank you so much to not only Matt, but also the mastermind behind it all, Joe Cutshaw. Thank you, Joe, for all you've done. Really great. Well, welcome everybody again. Um, we are in the midst of a sermon series on the book of Revelation. It's called Seed to City. And uh, let me just say, uh, honest, full disclosure here, the book of Revelation is a hard book. Amen? Man, it's a hard read. It's a hard read for everybody, including us pastor-preacher types. Uh, it works us, and the reason it does is because it's using a genre, a type of literature that's unfamiliar to most of us. It's called an apocalypse. Apocalypse is not the cataclysmic end of the world like we typically are led to believe. No, an apocalypse is a type of literature. It's a genre. And I thought about what this actually means, and I looked at our curtain, and it was helpful to me. Apocalypse means unveiling. It means to tear the curtain back. And I thought to myself, wow, what would it be like to tear the curtain back? What would be back there? And uh, in this case, not a whole lot, actually. But in the Bible, the Bible seems to indicate that there's a thin veil between this reality we're so familiar with and the greater reality to come. And so an apocalypse pulls all of that back to show us that. That's the intent of an apocalypse. It's a genre. And in order to read literature accurately, you need to be attentive to genre. And the best illustration I can think of is the Sunday paper. Because when the Sunday paper comes, and I saw it this morning, you open it up, and you're immediately uh, hit with genre. There's the real estate section. And then there are the comics, or the cartoons. And then there's Parade Magazine, and then there's some more advertisements and coupons. And then you get to the front page news, and you dig a little deeper, and you get to the opinion section. And the point is, we have learned, without anybody teaching us, to read each of those genres and not think about as we move from one to the other. We know how to interpret them. Because you shouldn't read an opinion piece as if it were news. Amen? <laughs> but when we come to the Apocalypse of John, the book of Revelation, we tend to forget these things. The Apocalypse, like many other ones, the book of Revelation is cryptic and coded. It uses strange symbols that we're not familiar with. Um, why is this? Why the use of symbols? Well, two reasons we've discovered. Because one, the subject is so great, God and God's majesty and the world to come, that you can't use prose language. You have to use symbols, almost like poetry. But secondly, you use symbols because the enemy is listening in. The enemy is listening in. These seven churches to whom John writes the letters at the beginning of this book, they're suffering and dying by persecution from the Roman government. And the Romans are listening in, and so John has to use code language. Reminds me a lot of the uh, Navajo code talkers in World War II. Anybody familiar with them? Yeah, so, so it was the Pacific Theater, World War II, and the United States Marines had to get messages out to commanders in the field, and they were using stock codes and stuff, and the Japanese were breaking the codes. 
But then somebody came up with the idea, and I think it actually started in World War I, where Native American languages were used, and na uh, Native speakers of those languages were used to, to convey that information, and the Japanese could not crack that code. All right? So the Apocalypse of John, the Book of Revelation, is apocalyptic literature. It uses symbols that we're not familiar with, and it's not to be li read literally as a result. I like what one of uh, a preacher, pastor, a friend of mine years ago, he was asked, do you take the Bible literally? And he said, no, I don't. I prefer to take the Bible seriously. You see, you can take the Bible seriously without reading it literally. And that's an important point that I think the book of Revelation teaches us. So where have we come from? Well, in chapter one, weeks ago, we had the prologue. John is the writer where identified uh, he's identified as a writer. Then we get these seven letters to the seven churches. Seven, the number seven is all over this uh, book. Seven is the number of completion, totality, uh, perfection. We get seven letters to seven churches. We then see in chapter four a vision of heaven. Chapter five, we meet the Lamb of God who was slain. Then Jane last week led us through the uh, breaking of the seven seals, which were symbolic of God's judgment on the earth, his complete and total judgment. Uh, and then we get into our section today, chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, that involves seven angels with seven trumpets, and after that are seven signs and seven plagues. You get my drift, lots of sevens. But the point is that God's judgment is complete and total against evil in the world. And then we get to the text that I've chosen to preach from, chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. And it's an interlude an interlude is a place of pause. It's a place where we pause and we think back to what we've heard and we look forward to what is yet to come. We gather up all that has come to us so far. This is an interlude, chapter 11. And I like to think of chapter 11 as Cliff's Notes. Remember Cliff's Notes? Cliff's Notes on the whole book of Revelation. I think that the things we're going to identify in this chapter are going to be pegs or hooks we can hang on to all the themes uh, from the book of Revelation, Cliff's Notes. So let's see if we can identify those themes. Let's take a look at our text, Revelation chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to comment as I go. John writes, I was given, in other words, God gave me, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. Stop right there. John is using this theme of measuring the temple that really we are introduced to in the Old Testament from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 40 and following. And this whole idea of measuring is symbolic of preservation and care. You measure that which is important that you want to preserve. And that John is now urged to measure on God's behalf the temple of God. And what's this? The temple is code language again. This time it's for the church. In the New Testament, the church is the temple of God, the body of Jesus Christ. Let's continue verse 2. But exclude the outer court. The outer courts of the temple do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles, code language for the non-believers. They will trample on the holy city. We'll hear more about that in a minute, or the city, uh, for 42 months. That's three and a half years. Now, three and a half is half of seven, right? It's a symbol for chaos. It's a symbol for devastation and destruction. 42 months, verse 3. 
And I will appoint my two witnesses, and these are, most people think, symbolic of the church itself. Two witnesses who will will bear witness to Jesus Christ. Two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. In other words, 42 months or three and a half years. And they're clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. That's a a reference to Zechariah, chapter 4 in the Old Testament. And they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours the enemy. In other words, the word of God that they proclaim has this effect. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power, the witnesses, to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. In other words, just like Elijah in the Old Testament, they have this kind of empowerment by God, by God's Spirit. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. In other words, they have the power not only of Elijah, but of Moses. Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets, the Christian church proclaims God's word and the power that was given to these great figures. Let's move on to verse 7. Now, when they have finished their testimony, their proclamation, the beast, later we learn is the Antichrist, this is the first reference to the beast, the beast that comes up from the abyss, will attack them and overpower them and kill them. And it seems like the mission of God is defunct. It is defeated. It gets worse, verse 8. Their bodies, the bodies of these two witnesses, the Christians, their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom, which means wickedness, and Egypt, which means oppression, where also their Lord was crucified, a reference to Jerusalem and religious hypocrisy. Verse 9, for three and a half days, there it is again, three and a half. Three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. Could it get any worse? Verse 10, the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. They hated their preaching, they killed them, and it looks as though the mission of God is lost and dead. Verse 11, but, but the great turning point, but after three and a half days, the breath of life, the spirit of God from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven, perhaps God, saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, just like Jesus did in Acts chapter 1, while their enemies looked on vindication. The mission is not dead. God is victorious. Verse 13, at that very hour there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Some were converted. Verse 14, the second woe is past, the third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, and now we get an angelic worship experience. Listen to these words familiar to many of us. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. Have you heard that before? I think you have. Verse 16, and the 24 elders symbolizing the Old and New Testament covenant people of God, the whole people of God, who were seated on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God, physical worship. 
Verse 17, saying, and now they respond with worship as well. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. And our last verse, verse 19, then God's temple, now we're talking about the heavenly temple, not just the people of God. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. Normally the temple of God is closed. It's, God's presence is so holy. Now it's opened, opened to all. And within his temple was seen, normally you can't see these things because of God's holiness, was seen what? The ark of his covenant. The mercy seat of God, God's mercy, God's presence available and visible to all. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. That's a lot. I know it is. It's a lot for me. It's a lot for you. But let me see if I can give you five hooks to hang things on that will make sense not only of this chapter, but I think really help us understand the entire book of Revelation. The first P, I'm going to call it, is for preservation. Verse 1, God will preserve the church. How do we know this? It's because John is urged to measure the temple, the church, measure it. And we measure things that are valuable to us. I measure my bike. I take careful measurements of my bike. Now, why do I do this? Because if some measurement is off, I will develop a chronic pain or a discomfort. And so I measure my bike, my beloved bike, and I store my measurements on my phone, uplifted to the cloud so that I can get those anytime I want, wherever I am. So if I travel and I need uh, to rent a rental bike, I will reproduce those measurements. Why? Because they're important to me. They're very valuable. God measures the church, knows every person in it. Everyone is important to God. And we need this message whenever we're going through hardship. We need to know that we matter to God, that God hasn't forgotten us. In the 6th century B.C., the people of Judah and the south king, southern kingdom of Israel, they were devastated by the Babylonian armies who came, destroyed Jerusalem, and carted off many of them to Babylon. And they thought God had forgotten them. And God has to remind them, I did not forget you. You are still very, very important to me. And this is what we read in Isaiah 49, one of my favorite sets of verses. But Zion, the people of Judah said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. But God answers through the prophet, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget... I will not forget you. See, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. When the people of God go through affliction, they need to know that God loves them and is for them and has not forgotten them. I see a spiritual director now about once a month. You know, a spiritual director has been an important discipline in my life for most of my Christian experience. It's sort of a counselor, but a, a spiritual uh, advisor who allows me to pay attention to God in specific ways. And this spiritual advisor recently was talking to me 
And he quoted this great quote from Brennan Manning, one of my favorite Christian authors. Manning, in his book from Abba's Child, that book, he says, do you honestly believe God likes you? Not just loves you because theologically God has to love you? And that just caught me up short. Do I believe God loves me? Well, I guess because God is love in 1 John, then I guess God has to love me. But do I believe God likes me? Sometimes, sometimes not. And I think that this is the spiritual journey that most of us are on. To truly believe that God not only loves us, but likes us and wants to be with us. I like what Tony Campolo has said. He said, if God had a wallet, he'd have your picture in it. God not only loves you because God is love, God likes you. And God will not forget you. So we are preserved in the love of God. Do you believe that? Friends, this is what we need to be thinking about, not only Sundays, but every day. P, preservation, number one. Now number two, a second P, proclamation. Verses 11, or chapter 11, verses 3 through 6. God will preserve the church, but God has also given the church a mission to proclaim the word of God, to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, even when we're being persecuted for it. Preach the word. Now, God's word is proclaimed in many different ways. Some of us stand up here and we preach it from a pulpit. Some of you simply share it over the back fence or around the water cooler at work or somewhere else. The point is, Jesus Christ is meant to be shared with others, and that is our, our mission, our proclamation task. I like what St. Francis so famously said. He said, preach the gospel always. If needed, use words. Sometimes it's the way we conduct ourselves, the way we serve and love others that proclaims the word. But we have a mission. How are we engaged in it? It's through prayer. It's through active sharing verbally. It's through service. It's through giving our money and resources to help other missionaries. How are we engaged in the proclamation of the church? That's something for us to think about. Preservation, proclamation, a third P, persecution. The church will be persecuted. I'm concerned that in many Christian circles, there's something which I have identified that I call Christian folk religion. Christian folk religion, it's sort of that uh, superstition almost where Christians believe that if I just do the right thing, nothing bad should happen to me, right? If I do the right thing, if I... If I try to obey God, then nothing bad should happen to me. And if I don't do the right thing, then bad things will happen to me. Well, this is Christian folk religion. It's not biblical. Because these two witnesses did the right thing. They proclaimed the word, and look what happened. They suffered, they bled, they died, and they were desecrated. Persecution is real. Persecution is part of the Christian experience. Paul, writing to Timothy, the second letter, said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said in the eighth beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus also said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Oh, how we wish it weren't the case, but this is what we've been told. And what we're talking about is real persecution. We're not talking about people who quit telling their dirty joke when we walk in the room. We're not talking about people who didn't invite us to the party because they thought we were no fun. 
because we're Christians. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about real persecution. Loss of livelihood because of our faith. Loss of blood. Loss of life. Take a look at this map. This is from a website that uh, chronicles Christian uh, persecution around the world. And the darker the color, the worse the persecution. You can see North Africa is bad. Somalia is bad. Uh, Parts of South Asia are bad. India and Pakistan. The Middle East, North Korea. Friends, if you do a Google search and look up persecution of the church, you will hear stories that will be hair-raising. And our brothers and sisters are going through those things now. And even though we may not be persecuted for our faith, they are, and they're part of our family. And that's why we need to remember them and pray for them. And Jane, thank you for doing that. We need to do it weekly. Persecuted church. Preservation, proclamation, persecution, and then protection. God will raise up the church. No matter how bad the affliction, no matter how bad the persecution... God will raise up the church. Death can't defeat the church. And we Christians, as we follow Christ's path, we will not only die in in various ways, but we will also be raised. What I'm learning more and more at this stage of my Christian journey is that God plays the long game. We play the short game. We want quick answers. We want things instantaneous. But God plays the long game. And the long game is a good game. And the long game is a victorious game. Do you know the Heidelberg Catechism? Heidelberg Catechism, 1563 in Germany. Some of our uh, Reformed church, our tradition, our forebears wrote this definition or statement of faith up. And I learned to memorize it in seminary. And if you have not memorized it, may I urge you to do so. But here's what it says. And Christians have learned and said this for centuries. What is your only comfort? in life and in death? The answer, that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil, that he protects me so well that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Preservation, proclamation, persecution, protection, and finally, praise. The story of the Bible, the story of Revelation, and certainly chapter 11, ends with praise. Listen to those wonderful words again. Verse 15, the angels are singing. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ or Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Where have you heard that? You heard it when? Easter, right? Easter, whether you were here or whether you were at Mackey Auditorium on the CU campus, we conclude every Easter with the Hallelujah Chorus, Handel's Messiah. And I wanted to remind you of it because we are in Easter season until next Sunday. Let's listen to just that phrase.
because that is glory. Glory, that is our future. That is the assurance of the future invading our present and giving us hope. Praise. Praise is how it all ends. And so we have these five things that take us through not only chapter 11, but all really the book of Revelation. Preservation. God will preserve the church. Proclamation. God gives the church a mission. Persecution. The church will be persecuted preservation, God will preserve the church no matter what should happen to us, and praise, God's praise will triumph in the end. You know, as congregational care pastor, I go to hospitals a lot, and sometimes there's a, it seems like I'm there more than once a day, and I'll walk in sometimes to the ICU, and I will see one of you hooked up to tubes, breathing apparatus, bags hanging, Technology all around you, people rushing in, trying to care for you. And I'll think, what am I here for? Why am I here? What is it that I really bring in light of all of this? And then it occurs to me, I bring a reminder. I come, or if you visit someone, you come to bring a reminder about who you are as a person and whose you are. You are a beloved child of God. God loves you sent his son Jesus to die for you. You are not only loved, you are liked. And then I remind you that your future is secure. No matter what should happen in this ICU, even if you die, you will still be victorious because you are going to glory. That's my role, to remind you and be a, a presence of, rem of remembrance there with you. Friends, God is behind the veil. We don't always see what God does, but what John is trying to give us is a, a glimpse behind the veil where the sovereign goodness of God triumphs and we will reign with him forever and ever. Amen. As we come to the table, all these truths are here. There's that phrase in the book of Revelation applied to God and to Jesus that says, he who was and is and is to come. Three separate tenses that are all here in the table. Jesus Christ, who was our Savior, shedding his blood on a cross to forgive us our sins. He who was. He who is with us in communion in a mysterious and unseen way to encourage us and strengthen us. And he who is to come. To come in glory and to right all wrongs and, and to spread a feast for us to which this is just a simple pointer. Jesus Christ, as Lord of this table, he invites all who trust in him to come and eat and drink in remembrance of him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it's such a mystery. We don't understand all that goes on, not only in your word, but certainly in this table. But we trust that you're here and that you know us, that you love us, that you even like us and you want to be with us. So help us come in faith and simply to say thank you as we take these elements. In your name we pray. Amen. Hear these familiar words. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, Jesus also took the cup and after giving thanks, he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant which is poured out 
for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do this in remembrance of me. And the Apostle Paul adds that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This is the table of the Lord for the people of the Lord. We will be uh, celebrating communion by intinction. That means dipping. The ushers will dismiss you. You'll come up to one of the stations here, take some of the allergen-free bread and dip it in the cup and eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Let us do this together.